Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Here's your host, Jacob Wells. Welcome to Latte with the Lawyer. I'm your host, Jacob Wells, and today I'm so excited because we have a great episode for you. We're going to be talking with Peter McGlynn, an attorney at Bernkopf Goodman, about construction, malpractice, commercial, and bankruptcy cases. So here's our guest, Peter McGlynn. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jacob. It's a pleasure. Hope you're well Thanks. and safe. Thanks so much for uh, spending some of your time with us today. I got to ask you, since the show is called Latte with the Lawyer, before we get into any of the law-related stuff, what's your favorite type of coffee or uh, morning drink of choice that gets you fired up in the morning? A medium Starbucks Americano with hot milk. All right. All right. Nothing too fancy, but definitely yeah. strong enough to get me going in the morning. Got it. Love it. So uh, before we get into the episode, can you just give our viewers a bit of an overview of who you are? I've been practicing for, thank you, Jacob. I've been practicing uh, trial law for about 46 years uh, in Boston, but my practice has been national as well. I've tried cases in I think 23 different jurisdictions, primarily construction and real estate law, but other commercial cases as well. Uh, I've tried to verdict in excess of about 150, 175 cases uh, over that 46-year uh, time period. Uh, my firm is in Boston. We have about 25 lawyers. Uh, I'm uh, doing this now for as long as I can remember. Yeah. So take us back 46 years ago when you were you know, in college trying to figure out what you wanted to do with your life. How did you become interested in law? Well, I always wanted to become interested in uh, the practice of law. Things have changed now. I mean, more people are going into financial services and investment banking, at least in, around here. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, fewer and fewer people are, are uh, entering the, the practice of law, at least as we know it. Uh, there are lots of people out there with law degrees, and that makes them qualified to do a lot of different things, not just necessarily practicing law but but it has evolved and it's changed a lot of things that uh, we did 46 years ago are now outsourced to all to, uh, throughout all parts of the world um, mm -hmm. there are of course more challenges for what we do these days especially during this pandemic we've been able to I think adjust even let's call them senior attorneys like like me these these uh, these media that uh, that we're on today, for example, Zoom. That's yeah. the that's the way we are conducting business now in the trial world. But so what are well when you say you're outsourcing a lot of things today, what does that mean exactly? What are you guys outsourcing? A lot of uh, legal research, uh, 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 deposition summaries, uh, document management is the mm -hmm. is the biggest thing now, especially. Uh, one thing we really didn't have 46 years ago was was uh, uh, ESI, electronically stored information. We barely mm -hmm. had any computers at that time. So now that's become a cottage industry of itself in any uh, 
just about any litigation. So consequently, uh, to do that in-house now is it would cost a client an enormous amount of money. So mm-hmm. a lot of that is outsourced. We want to make sure that the people are properly certified, that they're doing the appropriate extractions and, and monitoring and, and, uh, and reviewing. And a lot of that is done by these specialty firms, both uh, in this country and in India and mm-hmm. Indonesia. Uh, primarily, those are those are a lot of the places that we are dealing with, with this type of uh, this end of the practice. Right. No, it's definitely interesting to see how things have changed over your um, extensive career. Um, how how have things changed over the forty six years? Where do you see the industry going in the future um, with technology advancing? Well, I don't. Th- I think that there are going to be other areas, other practice areas that are going to change perhaps more radically than what I do. Right? I don't think that uh, technology at this point is going to supplant lawyers getting up in front of a judge or a jury and arguing their case or trying the case. A lot of it now, of course, is is done uh, driven by the pandemic through you know, WebEx and go to meeting and, uh, and Zoom, of course. But it's still the same. You've got to present arguments, and uh, I think the bigger challenge that really was not uh, that significant 46 years ago was bringing the younger attorneys, the younger practitioners, into court and getting them experienced in standing mm-hmm. up and talking to a judge and addressing a jury. Um, there are fewer and fewer opportunities to do that. It's even fewer so now when you're talking about live performances in front of a judge or a jury as opposed to Zoom. Right. That's actually something that um, I find really interesting is the performative aspect of getting up in front of a jury and, you know, um, explaining the case. So is there anything that you're interested in aside from law that you think has helped uh, you become an effective trial attorney, an effective communicator? Well, number one, practice. I started this uh, 46 years ago, I and uh, it was uh, really cold uh, immersion, cold water immersion back then. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think, within three or four weeks after I had joined this firm, right out of law school, I, I hadn't even uh, gotten the results of the bar exam, where I had uh, my, my mentor at that time, uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Myers, uh, passed away recently, regrettably. But uh, he had me come over and address 500 lawyers over in the Ames courtroom at Harvard Law School. This wow. is a, a young kid, 25 years old. Yeah. Um, to say the least, I was nervous, but I got through it. And um, But it was a good experience, and it was really something that uh, told me and, uh, that the best experience is to do it rather than just review it or learn it from a book. And that's really how I got started. One of the mm-hmm. things that I've stressed with, uh, with both my colleagues and young associates and anybody else who's willing to listen to me, and that is, if this is the type of practice that you want to be involved in, get yourself out of the public, get speaking engagements, do seminars, get, get yourself out there, mm-hmm. and get yourself comfortable addressing people, addressing audiences, uh, it's, believe me, 
even today after 46 years of, of trying cases in front of judges and juries, I still get nervous. But yeah. at least I've been able to overcome those nerves and it kind of gets you psyched up like before a football game. Right. But I still get nervous and, and people should not be afraid of the fact that they will get nervous. It's a mm. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy and I, I think about the same thing. What you said, getting psyched up for a football game, it's like you get anxious before a football game or going on a roller coaster or something, but that that is like excitement. It's a positive anxiety. So if you can reframe your anxiety in a different way like that, you know that those feelings are more positive and, um, you know. You, have, but, to, you so, have to understand that that's going to be the case. So right. uh, embrace it as opposed to walking away from it. Mm -hmm. Since we're talking about... Um, you know, being a trial attorney and uh, communicating with the jury. Was there a specific case over your career that was really memorable and um, was an exciting case to be a part of? I know you had asked me about that and I had to think about it for a while because uh, I've tried a lot of cases, but uh, one that came to mind wasn't the largest, it wasn't the most sensational, it wasn't the most uh, newsworthy, but all these years later, it still kind of tugs at my, at my heartstrings. Uh, it was back, I think, in 1991, and a, uh, uh, another attorney had referred the case to me. This client, an individual, uh, had had an attorney who handled the case perhaps less than satisfactorily. So, uh, I took it over literally within about six months of the trial date to complete uh, the, uh, the discovery and get the case ready for trial. Mm -hmm. uh, the client was a very successful real estate broker, a decorated Korea War veteran. He was the number one broker in, in multiple offices of this large real estate firm. Um, in fact, he was so successful, he became a 14% shareholder in the company uh, but he was also an alcoholic uh, a gross what they call in the law a gross confirmed alcoholic been in, a, in and out of a number of sanitaria his alcoholism uh, uh, precipitated his divorce and his estrangement from his children and ultimately uh, while he was at a clinic sponsored by his employer to go dry out mm -hmm. they fired him and uh, for cause, obviously, they had well-documented incidents of his uh, less than uh, business-like behavior intoxicated in the, in the company, but he was very successful. He said, well, mm -hmm. being alcoholic. His stockholder yeah. agreement said, we get, uh, we get to buy your stock back at the company's book value, an undefined term in the stockholder's agreement. And so they said, our uh, company has a negative net worth of some million dollars, and therefore, here's a check for a dollar, uh, which, is, which is more than the book value, and, uh, and uh, that's, that's what you're going to get. So ultimately, he filed suit. The prior counsel uh, uh, was unsuccessful in, in keeping most of the counts in the complaint alive. There was one count left. Wrongful termination had been dismissed. But the one count that was left was violation of the shareholder agreement. Mm -hmm. we agreed, I agreed to take the case on. Uh, it was a uh, 
a lengthy trial and two, two, two and a half weeks here in Boston in front of a jury. It was a young jury, which was not typical of the jurors, uh, the jury makeup at that time. Hmm. Uh, it was a tough case. The judge didn't like our case uh, and uh, tried, they, uh, they tried to get, get my expert witness tossed a number of times. We oh, wow. keep him in there. But after uh, two and a half weeks, the jury came back after about two hours and literally gave us uh, right down to the penny what we were asking for. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I had asked the judge to ask our expert witness at the time to calculate the amount uh, of uh, money that he would be entitled to. And I said, what is 14% of X? I forget mm -hmm. the exact amount. And the judge, the judge objected and said, the jury can figure that out themselves. Well, guess what? They did, and they came really right down to the, to the penny, what wow. we were looking for. So, uh, but unfortunately, there's more to the story. But one of the things that always struck me about that case, that never happened, Jacob, yeah. before or after, is we packed up our bags and went out of, out of, the, uh, out of the mezzanine of the old uh, courthouse. And the entire jury, all 14 of them, were waiting for us, hmm. waiting for me, and they gave us a standing ovation. Wow. Uh, it never happened before. I doubt that it'll ever happen again for hmm. the remaining uh, years that I have to, uh, to practice. But the point is, the judge still didn't like our expert. He nullified the jury verdict and ordered us uh, on for a new trial. Uh, we tried the case about six months later. I got a, had to get a different expert. And the jury came back, I think, within $50,000 of the original verdict. And that time, uh, the verdict stuck. It was, uh, we, we ultimately settled the case on appeal. It's, uh, unfortunately, that happy note that has to end with a sad note, and that is mm -hmm. that the client contracted uh, cancer about two years later and died shortly thereafter. So unfortunately, he was never able to really enjoy the benefits mm -hmm. of all of those years of, of hard work of labor and the money that ultimately he received for his settlement. That's right. that's uh, the case that I'll always remember for a whole host of reasons, but uh, you know, there were lots of uh, lots of uh, Shakespearean uh, twists and turns in the case. Mm -hmm. I shared a few of them with you. Yeah, I think that when you were describing the standing ovation aspect of it, that you can get a clear visual. It, it's like straight out of a movie. It's so surreal. I mean, that's hard to forget something like that. I feel like it's you know it's it's uh, part of this is is this business a lot of it's strategy. I knew that mm -hmm. the other side were was, was licking their chops to get the client on the stand, and he had to testify. Obviously, he had to tell the mm -hmm. story, but they were going to cross-examine him all all of the, you know, the, the the drunken displays and the obnoxious behavior and all that, which of course is all true. Right. But I decided, I said, let's get him out there first. I put him on the stand as my first witness. And I took the jury through his time from decorated career war veteran through his, uh, his uh, achievement of, uh, of being the number one broker in this firm with like 75 or 79 offices. The point that uh, we got to the to his alcoholism, he, he, he told them candidly his story. Uh, in terms of his destroyed marriage, his estrangement from his kids. One thing I've always remembered and I brought up in discussions 
ever since then is he, he told the jury about what he described as the alcoholic's cure. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's never his problem, it's never the alcohol. So he moved a lot. He moved to, from town to town because that was the problem. It was over. That was the location. That was the reason that he had uh. because of alcoholism. But I saw several of the, the, uh, the uh, female jurors literally were crying as I took taking him through this, this rather uh, unfortunate and unpleasant journey that he had. And mm. really the cross-examination of him, which we were really terrified about, turned out to be uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty neutral. So that's that's that was the case. He was a great guy, a great guy to work with, and I'm sorry that he wasn't around long enough to realize uh, yeah. fruits of his labors and my labor. Well, that was a really exciting story, and I'm uh, really glad that you shared it with us. If there's anybody uh, who's watching this that was really inspired by that case or anything that you were talking about, what's the best way to find you uh, online to get in touch, learn more about you? Well, the name of my firm is Burnkopf Goodman, LLP. Uh, We're in Boston over in the Seaport District, for those who are familiar with Boston, overlooking the harbor. Uh, But my telephone number is 617-790-3490. And my light just went out. (laughs) Uh, All right. Yeah, uh, but uh, obviously, Jacob, uh, feel free to reach out, and uh, and uh, this was fun, and I really enjoyed uh, meeting you and working with you on this uh, this particular uh, task. Likewise, thanks so much for spending some of your time with us today. Um, this has been Jacob Wells for Latte with a Lawyer. I want to thank Peter McGlynn of Brinkhoff Goodman again for joining us today, and uh, thank you to our sponsor, Motion Track with a K. Uh, without a case, sorry, that uses artificial intelligence and mobile app audiences to economically and quickly gather focus group research and data for trials and mediations. Thanks, Peter. Jacob, thank you. Stay well, stay safe. All right, take care. Thank you.